are you doing? I hope that you are enjoying this transition into spring, that you guys are getting some warmer weather. I know that we are, um, and it has just been a beautiful, beautiful spring. Uh, So I hope you guys are enjoying it. I wanted to talk today about honoring your knowing. I believe we are all equipped and created with this incredible knowing. We know the right choices for us. We know what's aligned with the essence of who we want to be. But I feel like a lot of the world is walking around denying this knowing that they have. And it's no wonder that we walk around like this because I think society doesn't want you to have this knowing. Society wants us to get in debt and keep up with the Joneses and work every hour of every day and exercise and have a clean house and help our neighbors and please everyone else. And this is problematic, right? Because by ignoring our knowing, we end up not being intentional with our own lives. We end up living out what other people have dreamed up for us, what the world has dreamed up for us, but not necessarily what we were put here to do. I just finished reading this great book that I think everyone should read. It's called Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. And in the book, it talks about some basic concepts of prioritizing your time on what is most essential. It says that the majority of what we do every single day are non-essential items, answering emails, attending that board meeting, surfing social media, and that we spend actually very little time on the things that matter. So the book is basically a roadmap on why we are so non-essential, how we let go of these non-essential things, and how to focus our time and attention on essential things. And when I say essential, I mean things like family, health, wealth, the big things that you'll be happy you spent time on when you're old or, you know, when you're dying. So this book relates to honoring your knowing because instead of living in reaction with this long to-do list or being pulled in all these different directions, it teaches you how to say no to just about everything. Um, And now I know that I've talked about this saying no thing before, but this book really helped put some practical steps in place for how to actually do that, how we say no and why we usually don't say no. And it's not as easy as it seems. When a friend invites you over or asks you for help when you're really tired, if you stopped and thought and looked inward and asked yourself, does this work for me? Is this essential? Is this what my body and spirit wants? Well, it's an easy no, right? I want to rest right now. But too often we don't honor ourselves and we let others choose. So we say, sure, I'll be right over. We bend over backwards to prove that we're a good friend or that we're reliable and that we can do all things. So I invite you to just spend the next week or so becoming aware of where you react instead of making a thoughtful, intentional decision. Where do you just act rather than choose? Where do you so quickly just jump to or say how high? And where is that reaction in direct contradiction with your knowing that you don't really want to be doing this. This is not what you would have planned for your day. This is not how you want your day structured or to be spending these things this time on. So, so just get aware of where you react, how often you react and when that's in contradiction with your knowing and pause before you say yes to things. So start just Start wedging some time in between the request and the reaction and just wedge a little bit of time into there to think about it Um, and to get to know how it feels in your body if you were to say yes to this or if you were to act on this. Get to know what you want. What are your priorities? How are you honoring what you were put here to do? Okay, so all of that is to say that today's guest is someone who ignored his knowing for a long time because of society pressure and perception, but he also came back and honored his knowing in a huge way. Steve always knew that he wanted a family. He was raised Catholic and grew up thinking that he was destined to marry a woman and have children. 
when he was confronted with his attraction to men and the eventual realization that he was gay, he gave up the dream of having a family and chose to go the route of gay singledom. And as times changed and he gained greater self-acceptance, he reignited his dream for a family and started the journey towards parenthood. Steve's the author of the book Determined to be Dad, which chronicles his trials and tribulations of self-discovery to acceptance to building a new reality and finally the joys of creating his own family through adoption. I am so thrilled to have you all learn from Steve's story. I'm going to roll that intro and we will meet Steve on the other side. I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local community. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group. Together we can end the foster care crisis. Thank you so much for joining us. I um, am excited to hear more and to hear more about your book and your work. But before we get into that, can you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about where you came from? What was your childhood like? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so first of all, thank you, Rebecca, for having me today. My childhood. So first of all, my name is Steve Disselhorst. Um, I'm an author, uh, a leadership coach, um, and also a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. Um, I live in the Bay Area, um, and I've been here for, oh, over 30 years now. Um, I grew up in the Midwest in a uh, Irish-German Catholic family. Um, pretty uh, religious family and grew up uh, with actually, I think about it, there was one, one um, I had one classmate uh, in junior high who was adopted. Other than that, adoption uh, foster care system was not uh, something that was um, uh, in, it, that I didn't have a lot of uh, knowledge of growing up. Um, I grew up in a very large family. Uh, I have uh, three brothers and sisters, and then I have a, about 26 first cousins that were all very uh, much a part of my life. So um, birthdays, baptisms, confirmations, uh, graduations, you name it. That was uh, how we spent our weekends and our, um, and actually during our week as well. Most of my family lived within about 90 miles uh, of where I grew up. And um, so we saw them quite frequently. We were very close-knit family and continue to this day be very close-knit um, with with relatives uh, all over the globe, actually, now they've moved. Um, so, so that's a little bit about my background. Um, I came out in 1990 as a gay man. Um, I never could imagine um, being gay because I knew from an early age I wanted to be a parent. Um, and I had no um, examples of uh, actually any images of LGBTQ people in my life um, personally. And there were at that time no images um, in the 70s and 80s of any LGBTQ person uh, having children. So um, I never thought, I always knew from a very early age, I was like, family is what uh, what matters and and means the most to me. And I always knew I wanted to be a dad. And then I started to figure out that I wasn't um, attracted to women and that I, in fact, I was attracted to men. And I was puzzled because I was like this, like it was seemed to me like a very much a binary choice of you're either heterosexual and have a family or you're gay and you don't have a family. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, 
So that was very strange. I couldn't reconcile. And then when I started to um, really start to think about and accept um, my sexuality and my sexual orientation, I kind of gave up the dream of being a parent. I said to myself, um, you know, it was really in the the height of the AIDS epidemic and seemed um, impossible to even just survive that epidemic. And then the idea of actually... Of, of having children seemed impossible. So I sort of gave that dream up um, for many years. And then when things started to change um, in the late 90s and early, uh, early 2000s, I started to um, reimagine a life uh, as a parent and with a family. Yeah, it's really interesting. So you said, you know, being gay or coming out as gay uh, didn't really occur to you because you expected to have a family, but did you have any, like, um, were you worried about how your family would, you know, think, or were there expectations placed on you due to your religion and because of your family and because of the time, um, you know, eighties, nineties that you, was there any like trepidation about being accepted and whether it was right or not? Yes, there was a huge okay. amount of trepidation. <laughs> uh, we we call that terror. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fear. Yes, it was. Uh, it seems in many ways like a long time ago to have those feelings of such um, tremendous fear. Um, but that was that was my existence uh, at that time. I just couldn't. Uh, I couldn't imagine. Um, being uh, being gay it was just seemed impossible um and i was terrified of losing my family and my friends and uh, my life as i knew it so it was a very challenging time for me yes did you ever think of like i'm like play out in your mind or actually play out like i'm just gonna go ahead and find a woman so that i can have a family or like you know morph into this what's expected of me role? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, I I dated women in high school. I dated women in college. And then I met a, a, a man at the time uh, that um, I was, I really liked. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just have, quote unquote, an affair with this person and just test the waters. But then I'm definitely going to go back to being straight and, um and I, I did. I went back into that uh, idea of being straight and I was dating women and trying that, but um, it really did not uh, hold uh, for much longer. Once, once the genie was out, uh, it was just a matter of time. It was more really me accepting myself and then uh, educating others and really um, working towards uh, you know, a, a life that would work for me. When you uh, did come out and or when you were at the point when you were actually like reimagining, oh, I could have a family and be gay. Um, did you already have a life partner that you were thinking of building a family with or were you reimagining it whether or not you had a partner? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, so what I started to see sort of in the mid 90s, sort of late 90s, with the, there were a lot of. Um, women lesbians in the bay area that were having children or had had children and they were starting to be more visible about it um and then there were also um you know men who had been married to women who came out later in life so you started mm -hmm. to see these glimpses of well women are doing it they can do it on their own um and you started to see some men coming out and so i started to think about it um and i didn't have a partner at that time and really was like, maybe this is something I could do on my own. Um, and maybe it's something um, that I can consider on my own. But I still really wanted to be in a relationship with, uh, you know, to fall in love. And so sure. I, I held held off um, and just sort of like considered to continued to think about it. And um, that was uh, then in the early 2000s, I met my uh, then partner, uh, who we spent 17 years together um, and we both had the dream of becoming parents. So that's, that's kind of where that happened. Okay, nice. So before you met your partner, when you were like imagining this, I could be a dad, was there a lot of like, I could 
you know, get a surrogate or I could do the foster route or I could do a doc. Like, did you like really think out how you could build this family or were you just like, I know it's going to happen for me one day? I didn't, I, I would say I didn't know it was, it could happen. I actually, um, you know, sort of from a self-esteem perspective was still, you know, kind of like, do, do I deserve this? Do I really, mm. do I really want this and do I deserve it? And, um, but I started to like think more about it and, and really it was more like a feeling. I started to feel mm. more like, okay, this could happen. And then I started to, um, spend more time with children to sort mm. of do like, uh, test runs with, uh, my my siblings children um and then when i met my partner we lived in um uh, we lived in oakland and we bought a house together over there and we had a neighbor across the street that had a, a child and we started to get very close with them and we ended up starting to babysit the child and we would do sleepovers and it was sort of like a a test run of like what parenting would be like um, and it was great. It was a really, uh, they fully trusted uh, us. We trusted them. They were directly across their house was directly across from ours on a very, um, like a small street. So we would see him in the morning. He would look, he would open his window, he would look out. And, um, so then it was like, okay, we can do this. And then we started to kind of go into the information phase of like, how do we want to do this? Like, what's, what's the, what's the way that we want to do it? And, and so that was a interesting process. Um, and uh, yeah. And, and then we, um, we decided, you know, we, as a couple, we're not attached to our DNA. We didn't feel like we wanted to, um, we needed or wanted to uh, have children that had our DNA and we felt um both of us very ha very much so have a strong belief in God, and we felt like there was a connection or would be a connection with uh, a family um, or a child and or a child out there um, in the world. And so that's kind of where we decided. We were like, okay, let's go down the adoption route. I love that. I love that you had the opportunity to play a role in somebody else's life, another child's life before. Sometimes uh, with – I never even – thought of this when I started the Stable Moments program, but um, because it's a mentorship program, I started getting quite a few mentors that were like, we're interested in fostering or adopting, but we're nervous about that commitment. So they'd like to spend an hour a week with a kid. And I was like, oh, this is awesome if this can be like the, you know, uh, on-ramp for people thinking about that. So it's beautiful that you're able to kind of, you know, wade your way in a little bit. Yeah. So um, tell me a little bit more about this, these internal struggles that you had that were like, did I deserve, um, you know, did I deserve this? Am I, I mean, I'm, a lot of people think about, am I going to be a good parent? But, uh, you know, specifically for you or for you as a gay man, either one, um, tell me more about like this internal struggle that got you to the point where you did feel like you were deserving of yeah, I mean, I think it really was just around, um, like, with the amount of shame and um, societal uh, disdain for LGBTQ people at the time, you really question yourself a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and you question your worth a lot. And I think there was, you know, back in the 90s, uh, early 2000s, there was really a lot of um, that continued hatred towards our community. Mm -hmm. And so, um, while I lived in the Bay Area, while it was very accepting here, outside of this bubble and on a national level, you could see from a political um, perspective, you know, the Bush years and, and uh, other points uh, where there was a lot of disdain for our community. And so you internalize those messages, um, you know, and it's, uh, you know, challenging to see yourself in a positive light in that way. I think... Um, you know, eventually uh, it was like, yes, I can do this. I, I actually didn't question that I would be a good parent as much. It was, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was really, I, I think it was more around um, what's the right way to go about this. And um, I think I really struggled with like at that time, especially with like, is it unfair to a child to raise them in an LGBTQ mm -hmm. household? And that there was a lot of a lot of like media at the time around like, 
oh, you're a selfish gay man and you, you know, you want this for yourself, but it's really very bad for the child. And there weren't the studies yet that mm. um, show benefit of uh, LGBTQ parenting. And um, so there was a lot of just, you know, um, hatred and disdain and like, you know, these messages around like, oh, you're so selfish for doing this to a child and making them suffer in a world that doesn't accept LGBTQ people. Um, and so I think that was our my biggest hurdle around that. And then once I started to see families that were LGBTQ and were raising children and the children were happy and, you know, um, you know, loving and, you know, normal children, I was like, okay, this is just BS, right? Like we, we, um, we um, can move past that. And I think that, you know, that's really where um, it helped shift things for me. There's two organizations, nas- or there's a national organization called Family Equality that mm-hmm. um, advocates for LGBTQ families. They do a lot of programming to help people through surrogacy and adoption. And so you start to see images of family there. Mm-hmm. We had, have an organization called Our Family Coalition, which also does um, similar type of work in the California landscape. And so you could see families through those organizations and you were like, okay, I can do this. Like we can find communities that are accepting and we can make this work. And as a religious person, how was your journey with like, did you always have a church that you felt like was accepting? Did you, did it take you a while to find a church that was accepting and accepting at these different levels, like accepting with you being gay, accepting as far as you wanting to be a a parent? Yeah. I mean, uh, so my faith, uh, my faith in God has been sort of the center of my life. And so um, it was a struggle to find a church. I was brought up as a Roman Catholic um, and still the, the official position of the Catholic church is, you know, contemning of uh, homosexuals that are actively engaging, uh, like they believe in the sanctity of the human, but they are still, um, they don't believe in uh, homosexual relations. So that has been a challenge and there were different points in the last 30 years where the church was much more sort of vocal that made it more difficult to go to church. Mm -hmm. Um, In 2008 in California, we had a a proposition around same sex marriage that, um, that uh, failed uh, to pass, which meant that uh, uh, LGBT people could not get married. And one of the big sponsors of that was the, the, the archdiocese of San Francisco, Mm -hmm. So I had been going to church and had found a home in the Catholic church. And then that happened and I pulled back and Mm -hmm. stopped going to that church and started to go to a a non-denominational church for a couple of years and then eventually found my way back. Does your, um, do you and your partner go, are you of the same religion? Yeah. Both Catholic. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. So, um, obviously all of these decisions have to be made with your life partner. Um, so, um, what did he bring? Like, what was his experience? And you, you already said that he definitely did want kids. So you guys had that same vision, but was there any like, um, life experiences or, uh, desires or things that he had, uh, dealt with in the community that he kind of brought that, uh, shaped your path a little bit more? Yeah, I think, um, so he, uh, he grew up in San Jose with three sisters and he had several nieces and nephews and they all lived, um, very close to him. And so he was actually a care provider for young children really early on, not, not in, um, not in the sense, but there were always kids around that he was taking care of. So he felt very, comfortable like everything with children he felt (laughs) my family was back in the midwest and so i would see them for week you know i'd go back for a week for a vacation and i would see them but it wasn't a continual thing and so i felt a little like you know just around the like mechanics of children like changing and you know all this sort of illness and stuff i was like a little bit more fearful than him he was like 
I got this, you know, like <laughs> I've seen this as my niece, nieces and nephews over and over. And so that was a good balance between us that he had sort of, it felt very natural to him to, to, to care for children that were, um, that were sick or, you know, through different phases of their life. Me, I felt I could do it, but I didn't actually have a lot of the um, upfront experience. So did he help build your confidence that he did. You, he did. you knew you had the right, the right guy yes. <laughs> for this journey. Yes. Yes. Cool. So, so, okay. So, so now you guys have made a decision to go ahead and start a family. Yep. So walk me through like, what, how did you start the process? Did you choose an, an adoption agency? Did you know if you wanted like a newborn or what? Yeah. Yeah. So we, um, the first thing that we looked at when we were looking at an adoption agency was, were they LGBTQ open, not just mm -hmm. friendly, but were they like really, um, an open agency and really welcoming to, to our community. And so that was our number one, um, thing to look for. Um, and we were able to find an agency in the Bay area at the time that had about 25% of their, their um, adoptive parents were LGBTQ. So we felt very, very comfortable there. And that was really, um, I think, the key sort of deciding factor um, in our decision to go with that agency. Cool. So then you guys make your like family bio or whatever, your sales pitch. I've, yeah. ta I've talked to some people about how awkward the situation can be. Yeah. Um, did you know, but so usually when you go with an, an agency, you are expecting to like meet the mom when she's pregnant, right? And have a newborn come. Yes. So how quick did that all happen? Like, how was that process for you? Yeah. So um, it was a painful process. It's part of the reason that I wrote my book. Um, determined to be dad because what we experienced is we went live uh, in the in the system in like April of 2010 and we waited for two years before our daughter was born and mm -hmm. during those two years we were contacted by 14 different women mm -hmm. um, in various stages of pregnancy from six weeks to almost full term from 16 years old to 50 years old. We experienced the entire full gamut of um, women making the most difficult, profound decision of their lives. Um, and it was a, it was a roller coaster. Um, and that's really the reason I wrote my book was because um, while there's a lot of technical information out there about what you need to do, there's not as much information around like, the ups and downs of, of the process um, and the heartbreak that goes along with, you know, almost being matched with a birth mom and then, you know, not hearing from them again. And um, so that was the reason I wanted to get my story out there was uh, to share with folks who are considering adoption and also surrogacy. There's a lot of, you know, challenges along that process, but like, that if you really want to do it, like stick with it you can get through it. Um, and you, you, you know, you will, you will become a parent. Um, and so, uh, yeah, but it was, it was hard. It was really hard in the beginning. The first year was like, okay, you know, they tell you the average wait time and it was like, okay. But then first to second year, we went through like a, like, I think it was about eight months where we had no contact at all. And it felt like, Oh my God, this is not, meant to happen for us mm. um and um yeah and and so that was really hard so did you start to like question is this right like what's god's plan here how you know because we all start to right when things aren't happening yeah. in the way that we want them to so did you have you know any did you have to grapple with faith stuff i'm sure you did yeah we did so um we it was about the two year mark. It was 2012. It was about March of that year. We were completely exhausted from the weight and um, uh, situations falling through. And we, we decided to start thinking about surrogacy again. We were like, mm -hmm. okay, um, maybe we have a little bit more control in this process. And maybe, um, you know, maybe the universe and God is telling us this is the way we should go. So we have a couple of friends that are both doctors. One does 
um, he's an OBGYN and he does a lot of deliveries through surrogacy. So we had lunch with them to just kind of start talking through that option. Um, and then the miracle, uh, of our daughter happened. Um, and again, as a person of faith, uh, it was Easter weekend. We, mm -hmm. uh, in 2012 that, um, Easter Sunday, we were with uh, my uh, partner's family and celebrating Easter, and we were really down um, and just saying, we're not sure this is going to happen. And then the next day, we got a phone call. Um, there's a family in LA that's really interested in you, and um, it was uh, the day after Easter. And what ended up happening, we ended up meeting them. They ended up becoming our birth family, and it was it was actually the connection through God. The birth mom said, well, we saw your profile and, you know, we knew we opened it on Easter day. And the minute we had all of these profiles and a minute we saw yours, it was like, this is it. Mm -hmm. And then there were all these connections around. I collect rosaries. I have this thing about rosaries and crosses and she collects rosaries and crosses. And so there was all of this like um, connection through God. And it was just really uh really pretty miraculous. And so that was the Monday after Easter and our daughter was born eight days later. It was wow. crazy. Wow. It happened really fast then. So we got contacted on a Monday. We spoke with them on the phone for four days. Then we drove down to LA um, and she had told us that she thought she was doing about three weeks and we spent the weekend in LA and then we drove home on a Sunday and then literally 24 hours later they called and said she's gone into the hospital her blood pressure's high they're potentially going to induce and so we you know immediately drove back um and yeah that was it it was eight days it was crazy <laughs> oh my gosh yes we talked to um someone on the podcast who was a birth mom and the way that she walks she walked us through like how this huge, you know, obviously she's going through all of the emotions of being pregnant and choosing adoption, all of that. But she was like this process of like, I, she felt like she was playing God in some ways of like, I have these profiles and I get to choose who gets a family and they are looking at you like you're their answer to their miracle. And she was like, people feel like you're saying no to them, but you're really just, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, I can't imagine. I cannot imagine. And then you on the other side of it, just waiting and seeing, you know, and not being, not taking that personally. <laughs> I, I really, I can't imagine. It was, uh, it was hard. It was really hard. But um, what was interesting with our, our daughter's birth family um the, that, that Monday that we talked, we didn't actually talk to the birth mom. We talked to the birth father, which was also the first time we'd ever spoken with a birth father. Mm. Um, all the other occasions had been the birth mom. Um, but we spoke with him for several days and we hadn't talked to her at all. She didn't want to talk to us on the oh. phone. And we were like, Oh God, yeah. like what's going on here. And then our agency said, I think you guys should go to LA and meet them. And we drove down we had a, a meeting scheduled um, at like noon on Friday and we ended up meeting them and we ended up like immediately there was this connection and we ended up like we were supposed to meet with them for like an hour. We ended up talking to them for five hours. We were there just like, you know, the, the, the social worker from the agency like was there with us. And then finally after two hours, she's like, I got to go. I got work to yeah. do. It's like that first date where like the restaurant's closing yeah. and people and they're yeah. vacuuming. <laughs> it was totally. And it was, uh, it was just magical. It was just like, we all went through our own stories, our own journeys to where we were at in that moment in our lives. And um, yeah, it was just really beautiful, really powerful. And then the next day, then at the end, they were like, we want we want you to, you know, be our, our, our daughter's parents. And then the next day, they um, they told us that night, they said, we're going to go have an ultrasound tomorrow. Will you come with us? Um, and so we went and then we also met um, my daughter's has a brother. Um, she's got several siblings, but she has a, a brother that was there who was, you know, he's three years older. So we got to meet him mm. and we got to see her for the first time. Um, meanwhile, we thought she was, 
she was going to have the baby in three, three more weeks. So we were kind of like, okay. And, you know, enjoying everything. We need a crib. We need well, we did. <laughs> so we drove back on Sunday and then I thank God I did this, but I took that Monday off. I was like, I'll just take a vacation day. And then like that Monday, I was like, okay, we didn't have anything. Cause they tell you with adoption, don't get anything because mm-hmm. it makes the wait like so much longer. So we had nothing except the car seat. Cause you have to have the car seat for the, um, for the agency to, um, to approve you. Yeah. Approve you. So yeah. we had the car seat, but we didn't have anything else. And so like literally, you know, the, the, the babies are us was like <laughs> two blocks from our house. And it was like, got formula, got, you know, bassinet and bottles and diapers. And, you know, that was it. That's all we had. I mean, we literally had very little, um, and that was, you know, and it was fine. It was, it was great. Um, yeah. It's all you need. You don't need a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's crazy. So I do want to talk about your experience as a dad, but so with those, um, those meetings in those two years were, did you leave some like that was awkward and some with like really hopeful and some with eh, probably like, is it, it was, it was, um, I think, I think it was, the sense of because we had uh, the the meetings were actually um, not that awkward. They felt very natural. What was more hard for us to accept was, is it real? Because we had Mm. had 14 other women that had like some, we had been talking to for like a month, you Mm -hmm. know, like that had fallen through. And so that was the thing. It was like, Oh my God, is this actually real? Um, and that's where it got awkward. And then there was one day, the day that um, it was the day that our daughter was born, like she was born at like 10 p.m. at night. But that day, a birth mom invited like a lot of extended family to come and we got to meet all of them. And that was a little awkward, like just and one of the one of the family members wanted to adopt her as well. And so there was a little like. It was like an aunt yeah. who was kind of like had like eight kids already, but wanted, you know, wanted to adopt her and didn't want. And the birth parents were very much like, this is our decision. But it, that was a little awkward. Um, yeah. This aunt gave us like a gift for her. And it was kind of like we knew that she was the one that wanted to. So that was a little weird. But otherwise, um, you know, it was great. We have an open adoption with the family. And so we see them every year. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's great. I mean, we have a great relationship with them. Our son came through the foster program. So that's a very sort of different, uh, different scenario there. Yeah. So tell me, so, um, so you said that it's open, so you still have contact. Um, did you say that your daughter has a brother that's still with the birth parents? Yeah. Yeah. So what's fascinating about our story is that um, our daughter is the youngest of four. Okay. So she has um, she has two brothers and a sister, and she's the only one that was placed. Um, and then our son is the youngest of four from his birth mom. All of his siblings have been placed, and then both. Um, Myself and Lorvik were both the youngest of four. So we had this like number, this youngest of four thing going <laughs> in, in the family that was really um, super interesting. Yeah. So yeah, her siblings are um, still, you know, with her, with the birth families. How old is she now? She'll be nine in April. Yeah. Okay. Has she had any questions about um, like why why was I placed outside of my, you know, or have you thought of like how you would answer that as opposed to her birth uh, siblings staying with her birth parents? And yeah, I mean, so in the case of her, uh, her birth family, yeah, we've had those conversations, not recently so much, but it was really, um, it's really around her birth parents not being able to take care of her. Um, and, um, her birth mom is actually uh, in her fifties. So it was a late, late, late. She had a sort of a second family later in life. Um, Mm. And uh, really sad to say, but actually her birth father died um, Mm. when she was about three years old. So 
you know, there was definitely, um, there were issues around them being able to take care of her. And in, in hindsight, now that her birth father has passed, it would have been really, really, um, really hard on birth mom to uh, have, have actually, you know, if they've kept her, it would have been really mm-hmm. hard. They were struggling as a couple, um, just financially, just to like meet ends meet, uh, make ends meet. And so, without both parents being able to work, I can't imagine what it'd be like for them now. Yeah, that's beautiful that you've been able to have those conversations and you've been able to have it be open and have those connections. So what made you go through foster care versus adoption agency for your son? Yeah, so we were, um, for our first child, we were both like, we couldn't imagine um, uh a, a a child that came into our home that um then was reunited with their their mm. birth family and um the the rate of return for um you know open private adoptions where birth moms making birth parents are making the decision is is relatively low our agency mm-hmm. at the time said it's like around 5% of the time where you'll have a situation that they'll change their mind after the birth um, but then the foster care system, we know the risk is much higher, right? Like, mm-hmm. so it's like 10 to 25 they're, Right, they're fighting for their kids. Yeah, yeah. Really, so it's yeah. it's a much higher rate. And so for the first child, we were like, we can't, we couldn't, I couldn't. I was like, there's no way I could, you know, love a child for a year and then, you know, um, have them leave our home. And uh, But for a second, we were like, okay, we're ready to take more risk. And we also, at this point, were ready to... Um, help a child that was in need more and that mm-hmm. had more need. And so that was the reason we decided. We also had some friends that had used uh, this agency in the Bay Area, um, Foster to Adopt Agency, that had great success. Um, beautiful children. They had a really fast uh, um, adoptions. And so uh, we, you know, we kind of heard their story and we were like, okay, let's try this uh, Foster to Adopt um, Agency. And, and we did. And that's our son came through that. Did you, um, at that point, did you feel like pretty well received by your foster agency and like, was there, or by the adoptive community that was within that foster agency, um, as far as being, you know, a gay couple? Yeah, we did actually. So that agency, um, they are very LGBTQ friendly and they do a lot of education around, um, uh, transracial adoptions. They do a lot of work around education, around trauma mm-hmm. and the effects of trauma and, and kids that are in the foster system. And, you know, um, they do all of that. And so uh, we felt very included with that agency. Um, and uh, it was, a, they're great. Um, they're a great agency. Yeah. Did you feel like the trauma needs of your son were different than the needs of your daughter that you adopted straight? Yes. Yes. Totally different. Yeah. So our daughter's, uh, her, you know, her, her birth was, um, you know, know, her mom didn't have a lot of prenatal care, but because she was, you know, had other children, she knew her body. She knew how to take care of herself. Um, her, you know, my daughter's birth was completely normal and healthy. Um, my son's situation is very different. He was taken from his parents um, because of neglect, um, pretty severe neglect um, and abuse. And so he was, uh, that was at a very early age. And so he um, had a very different start to his life than she did. Um, and so, yeah. That was uh, that was really uh, very different. Yeah. How old was he when he came to you? He came to us at five months old, oh, um, wow. and he uh, when we got contacted, there was very little information about him. And I write about this in in my book. There was very little information. What's really challenging with the foster system through the states is that I, in most cases, they're still on paper files. Mm. There's not a lot of um, digital access. And the case with our son was our, uh, the, the agency we were working with, our, our social worker, she called us, but she was like, there's a little boy and he's in the hospital. And she had very little information about him. 
and the the caseworker for this the, the county was actually on vacation so it was the caseworker's manager so she had very little information and he had had an accident and he was in the hospital and um and so it was just like they called and they're like we have a little boy he's five months old he has an injury um you know you've got like you've got to decide within the next 12 hours if you want to take him or not and we were like we you know what the injury is like what you know like what is the condition and it was it was really really um really scary right like not knowing what you were stepping into um both uh both of us had decided and and through the process that we were open to all different types of children race ethnicity the only thing that we did not and i write about this as well that we were not really that open to is um, ch children with disabilities, um, and the and we both knew ourselves well enough. We were both pretty Type A personalities, and um, we were like, you know what, this is not something we're 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 made for. And so that was the only like that and twins. We were like, we can't take two at once. <laughs> Those were the two like thing. Otherwise, we were open to you know uh, drugs, alcohol, exposure, pretty much everything else. But it was like. And so we wanted to know what had happened and there was very mm -hmm. little information. Um, they gave us 12 hours and then the next day we were like, you need to give us more information. So we ended up having two days to sort of decide. Um, and then we made the decision once we got more clear information. And then I work in healthcare. And so I was kind of like, once we get to the hospital because of confidentiality, they can't tell us a lot. But once mm -hmm. we get there, we'll be able to get a lot of information from the care providers, the doctors and the nurses that are taking care of him um, because they have to have a care plan for him. Like mm -hmm. every hospital, right. you know, every uh, hospital has to have a care plan for a child, especially um, in that situation. So I was like, once we get there, we'll like, but we had already decided we were going to take him. But once we got, got there, we were like, we'll get like all the de details and, and we were able to get that. Do you feel like, obviously there was some like immediate rehabilitation and, and stuff, but do you feel like your training to become a foster parent and people usually laugh at this question, but um, prepared you for being like a therapeutic parent or one that, you know, knew, how to uh, deal with trauma and help kids heal? Um, no, we were not prepared, no. Mm -hmm. um, and while we did go through the training, and I think one of the things that um, was sort of like, they they very thorough. I mean, they're very good uh, here in California, and, and, and it was very thorough. And one of the things they kept bringing up was like, have you had trauma in your own life? And like, they see that like trauma can get re mm -hmm. uh, initiated with children who've had trauma. And, um, you know, we were both like, no, but I actually had trauma growing up and I didn't mm -hmm. really, wasn't really, um, really in my, in my brain at the time. And it wasn't really in my experience, but my son is actually because of his trauma sort of reactivated some of my own trauma. Mm. Um, and that's been a really sort of fascinating, um, journey with that mm -hmm. um and uh yeah it's been really fascinating journey yeah and allows you to do some of your own work and some of the in care like as you're learning to care for him you can hopefully learn to care yeah. for the little boy in you yeah so what were you able to do to like reach out and find the resources that you needed once you were in it yeah so i mean you know um we were, so what was fascinating, there's a woman I worked with um, at the time. I worked for a, a major um, biotech company. There was a woman I worked with and she had adopted a, a boy out of the, of the um, foster system in Pennsylvania. And she had told me that, you know, he had some issues um, and that they were diagnosing him as like ADHD and mm -hmm. that he was being diagnosed, but she actually... Um, she started to do some research. And so she started to educate me around like, actually it's PTSD, it's not ADHD. And so she was very helpful. And then she helped me find Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, 
who's um, done a lot of work in this area mm-hmm. around um, ACEs. She did the TED Talk, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and she actually worked with the company I was at. They've done a whole effort in the Bay Area around um, children and trauma. And so I, she has a clinic actually in San Francisco. So oh, once I nice. found out she had a clinic, I reached out to them and was like, hey, can we get him seen? And so there, that, and then I started to get a lot more educated about, you know, sort of the issues and um, yeah. And, and so I, we, we, we got the information, we we're able to get him the care that he needed. So I love that you got connected in that way. And of course you are in a state that has a lot of resources. Um, so what being an adoptive dad and being an adoptive family, what have been your biggest challenges and, or like, what was like, what, if you could name your biggest challenge and what has been your biggest win or wins? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest challenge, uh, Oh, I would say is, you know, two adults working, raising children uh, is really challenging. Um, and the demands of work and demands of um, childcare is just, it's exhausting. I would say the biggest, the biggest challenge for me is I didn't start having children until my mid forties. So my daughter was born when I was 45. I'm now f- almost 54. My son's five is challenging. <laughs> he got a lot of energy. <laughs> I got a lot of energy, but I don't have like one tenth of his energy. So I would say that is a challenge is being a, you know, an older parent raising a very energetic um, child is a challenge. Um, what is the, the greatest benefit I would say is, you know, the, the relationship with your children is just, I mean, I, um, you know, I tell them every day, the most important thing I do every day is take care of you. That's, that's it. Like, you know, like, yes, my job and income is important. Yes. You know, feeding you is important and all of these things, but the relationship and the bond with them is the greatest joy. Like that to me is like, um, you know, the thing that I just, you know, I'm just so happy about. Yeah. Yeah. It's like every, every parent is like the the most taxing and the most rewarding work that you can ever do. Right. Okay. Well, so what if, you know, people are listening and they're like, okay, like, I love this story. How can I be more inclusive of the LGBT community in general or as parents? What, what could people do? um, And, or, you know, what could have been, more helpful for you had the community known dot 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 um i mean i think that actually our uh, like early adoption community was pretty inclusive i think once we started to sort of um get them into sort of normal schools and are not normal schools but just get them in the system the schooling mm-hmm. system and all it's just that the schooling system, I would say, is very heteronormative mm. um, and is very focused around, you know, a man and a woman raising a child. Like, I think the statistics are like 90% of like um, of uh, the kids' books are like, you know, the mom is the mm. major character. And, you know, like there's very little diversity in the, the storylines around um, – parenting in a lot of the books and also the environments, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, um, women continue to be primary caretakers in many cases, working full time, doing all of that. And so I think, um, you know, there's just some, it's very unconscious, uh, but you know, there's like, oh, well, you know, where's mom or, you know, like, Mm -hmm. are, you know, sort of like, oh, you know how to take care of a child. There's like bias around, like, you know, we have women like, we would be with our kids and women would, I mean, we had one, one situation where one, two women walked in the elevator and they're like, Oh, your wives have the day off and you got the kids. And, you know, we're like, we have the kids all the time. Like, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're married and, you know, we have, these are our kids. And they were like, Oh, you know, of course we have, you know, they, you know, the, of course we have friends that are LGBTQ, but a lot of men get that. Oh, you're babysitting today. Mm. No, I'm not babysitting. Right. This is my life. I'm a parent. Mm -hmm. This is what I do all the time. So there's Mm -hmm. a lot of cultural bias around women being um, 
uh, primary caretakers. And so I think that's the like bigger thing. I think things are changing. Men are much more engaged, especially the millennial generation. We, you know, I, I have a number of um, friends that are in that generation and they want to be 50, 50 parents. Like they want, they want to be involved in parenting as much as is the mom. And so it's a beautiful thing, but you know, our society is still structured, you know, with a lot of uh, old habits, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even I was a post-adoption case manager, um, social worker, like literally was my job to hang out with and serve adopted kids. And I said something one time about like, oh, your dad must be tall because the girl was tall and her mom and her adopted mom was short. And I'm like, oh, your dad must be tall because, you know, your mom's short. And then I'm like, I know this girl's adopted. Like, this is what I do. <laughs> and like, so just how we are created to think it's socially constructed that there's a mom and a dad and they biologically give birth to this kid. And it's like totally of no, you know, ill intention. If you say like, Oh, go give this to your mom or your mom's going to love this. Um, and it is just shape, shaping that narrative um, and thinking about the different families people come from yeah. and we're, we're getting better, but it totally happens all the time. Yep. I do it myself. So it's, 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 it used to bother me in the beginning, but you know, I think for us, the biggest sort of like challenges were around like mother's day, you know, it's like in mm. preschools, they make such a big deal around mother's days. And, um, you know, in, in one's preschool, like my daughter was like asked to do like, Oh, what's your mom's favorite food and all this stuff. They knew we were two dads and they, they went ahead and asked her. And I was like, you, you can't put her in that position. That's really yeah. awful and awkward that she's, you know, and so those are the things that every year with school, like we talk to, um, you know, the teachers to let them know, like, how are you going to include, you know, different families? Um, I think it's actually one of the benefits of, the 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 pandemic last year we didn't have it in you know mother's day in school right <laughs> we didn't have to like deal with that that was like a blessing um for for our, for our kids they don't have to um answer those questions mm. yeah yeah you it's like you have to become unfortunately um a, you know an advocate in, for for the whole community um and educate people and usually you know people are willing to see yep. the effect that it is having. But yeah, I know we've been big pushes for not doing family tree exercises in schools and all, all that stuff. So tell us about your book. Where can we find it? Yes. So my book is Determined to be Dad. Um, and, and my name is Steve DeSolhurst. I'm the author. It's available on Amazon. It's also available on my website. Or you can just um, Google in determinedtobedad.com and you will be uh, directed to uh, my website where you can uh, purchase the book. Um, and yeah, and I, um, I also do coaching for LGBTQ people that are um, thinking about becoming parents. And so it's a, it's a, a service that I provide. I do um, try to help folks sort of remove the barriers in their own head. And then, you know, how do they become confident that they can become parents? So that's a part of uh, the work that I do. Um, and then just, you know, I'm very active in my community and, um, you know, part of different organizations really to try to help um, families, uh, LGBTQ people and others that are, you know, struggling with fertility issues that want to become parents to really um, delve into that. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit about uh, about my book. And I will tag it in the show notes for sure. I'll put your website. I'll put the link to the Amazon book. Um, make sure that everybody can get that. And I'll also put it out on our cool. social and tag you in it. That's so great. Thank you. This this has been awesome. This is our first LGBTQ. I feel bad for saying that, but it is. It's our first adoptive parent that um, is LGBTQ or of the community. So I'm so excited that you reached out. I was like, this is so relevant. We need to do this. That's great. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's great. I'm, I'm really excited to be here too. Cause I just, you know, I look at the statistics around the foster care system and, you know, and, and um, there's just such a huge need. And so for your listeners out there that are really trying to make an impact, you know, um, children that come or some of us have fears about children that come through the system and with the right 
um, type of training, right? Like, and with the right assistance from providers that are really um, knowledgeable about trauma and your, 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 your children can heal. And, and, and so I, I just really encourage folks, you know, to, to really um, help the, the community and, and advocate for the community. I love it. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time and writing the book and sharing your work and giving people insight. I know that with juggling being a dad, it's not easy to be hopping on these calls and stuff. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Steve has been so generous and he's given us a copy of his book. So to be entered to win a copy of the book into a drawing, all you guys have to do is make sure that you're a member of the Stable Moments Facebook group, the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group. And you have to invite one person. So add somebody as a member to that group that you know has foster or adoption in their heart. Make sure that they're invited. I see uh, who comes on as a new member and who they were invited by. So you'll automatically be added to the drawing. And we will announce the winner not only in the Facebook group, but on next month's podcast. Make sure you work on honoring your knowing. Pause before you react to any request. Put some space between a request and a reaction and just think, is this something that I really want to do? And see if you can start choosing rather than reacting. And let me know if this helps you at all in the Stable Moments podcast, Facebook group. All right, talk to you guys next month.